Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Second Thessalonians is the second letter from Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica that we have in our New Testament. Anytime we have letters written to churches, the ones that made it into Scripture are certainly not all of the letters that were exchanged between these believers. These are just the ones whose message was considered important enough and enduring enough to rise to the level of being authoritative for the church and therefore made it into the canon of Scripture. So even though we have like First and Second Corinthians, we believe there were some letters in between those. So these aren't all, but these are the letters that were kept. This letter is going to have very similar themes to the first letter to Thessalonica, themes around faithfulness in the face of persecution and about the second coming, the day of the Lord and Jesus coming back. If you want to hear the story of this church and its founding, go to Acts 17 verses 1 through 9. There we see the story that Paul and Silas are sharing the gospel in Thessalonica. Opposition is so strong that they form a mob. They storm the house where Paul and Silas are staying, and not finding them, they drag the homeowner and other believers out. They beat them, and they take them to the authorities. So this church started under tremendous opposition, and it has only continued for the believers who are there. Chapter 1 Paul greets them with grace and peace. This is the Greek word sheris for grace and the Hebrew word shalom for peace. In the Old Testament, when we speak about shalom, the peace of God, this meant all is as it should be, that God has made everything right. So when they greeted one another and they wished one another shalom, they are wishing for the other person that they would experience this peace of God. Paul puts the two together with grace, which comes to us through Jesus Christ. It becomes his signature greeting and salutation, meaning we experience the peace of God through and because of Jesus Christ. He begins by giving thanks for their strong faith, for their enduring witness in the face of the persecution that they are experiencing. One of the major themes in this letter, as I have already said, is around the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is always a popular topic with believers. There's no way to fill a Bible study any quicker than to say you're going to teach on Revelation. Everybody will flock to hear what's going to happen. It has been used down through the ages as revival themes, almost, in my opinion, as scare tactics to get people to convert and come to faith in Jesus. And I constantly hear believers say, that scares me, that makes me nervous. It should not scare believers. If we are in Jesus Christ, if we are surrendering to the Holy Spirit, if we are living as Jesus intended, then whatever happens when Jesus comes back, we're okay. We need to be about the work of God to make sure that all 
come to know Jesus and can be part of that. It's one of the reasons that Methodist Christians don't show quite the obsession with Revelation and end times. But the church at Thessalonica seems to be borderline obsessed with the second coming, with the great day of the Lord. The church at Corinth seems to be borderline obsessed with spiritual gifts, how to get them, how to use them, how they operate within their church. For the church at Thessalonica, it seems to be the second coming. And so Paul shares his thoughts on this. Um, He assures them that there will be judgment when Jesus returns, that God desires all will come to him. He may not be punishing everyone now. Um, we also see in Scripture, I believe it's in one of the books of Peter, First or Second Peter, that God is not slow. He's not failing to act. He's being patient, trying to give people time to come. But God is not the ultimate permissive parent for whom there are no boundaries and consequences. God's not going to forget those who oppose the gospel and who mistreat believers. There are consequences. God invites and wants all to come to him. But those who reject him and work against his purposes, quite frankly, he'll grant their request. He will not force them to be in relationship or be in God's kingdom in this life or in the next. There's also a difference between not responding. There's a difference between not accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ and engaging in violent opposition to it. Paul affirms that there is an eternal destruction, that there is a time when we become separated from the presence of God. Passing away or dying in this life does not exempt you from judgment. God will resurrect people to have their life reviewed and their ultimate destiny determined. And hell, whatever it may be like, um, Jesus portrays it as being like Gehenna, a valley outside Jerusalem that was a trash dump, a place where human sacrifice had once been made, where there would have been a constant rotting and horrible smell and fires from the trash being burned there. Um, so it would be hot um, there were others uh, down through church history who have believed that hell will be cold, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, and warmth comes from light, from fire, so hell being the absence of that would be cold and dark. Um, whatever hell is like, it is permanent separation from God. God doesn't want any to go there. And so Paul shares that they pray regularly for the believers. Um, this is something that leaders of congregations, who, those who are entrusted with the care of other believers, do regularly. I do it by using a directory and just going through in my daily quiet time and prayer time and just praying for believers, um, praying for those um, we know are going through difficult times. I do it for people from former churches and friends of mine and just lifting one another up. And um, the hope is that the congregations do that for their leaders as well. We move into chapter two, and we have a little more unfolding of what is happening. Other teachers unnamed to us, have distorted Paul's teachings. They are saying that the day of the Lord has already come. The day of the Lord is another way of talking about Jesus' second coming. Um, In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament prophets, there is this idea that the day of the Lord would come, that the Messiah 
would come in and issue this time of great peace and prosperity where all would be as it should be. There would be religious revival and God would bless um, Israel. For us as believers, we see it in two stages. Jesus came as the Messiah and initiated the kingdom of God. It is now in breaking. It is happening at the same time that the world continues to go on now and that there will be a time when Christ will come again and initiate the full consummation of his kingdom there. And there are those who are just saying that's already happened, which for me is as, is as confusing as it appears to have been for the Thessalonican believers. Because if that's already come, then what is that saying about the world in which we live? How is this the reign of God happening around us. What does that say about those who are in power um, now and in control? And Paul affirms that, no, in fact, the day of the Lord has not come. There will be a second coming of Christ. Before Jesus comes again, there has to be a rebellion, a period of time when Satan, um, the enemy, uh, the lawless one, um, leads people to rebel against God. Here in this letter, Paul refers to him as a man of lawlessness or the lawless one. It's another name for Satan or the devil, the one who leads the opposition against God. There's also a restraining force. This restraining force may be an angel or it may be the Holy Spirit. You can see more on this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Satan, or the lawless one, will promote his positions by all sorts of miraculous seductions and lies, and he will succeed in in leading some astray. In verse 2, we see that there will be other spirits, there will be words and letters, there will be feelings and signs and miracles and charismatic personalities and fancy teachings that will lead people astray. This, by the way, is one of the things that conservative and fundamentalist Christians say about moderate and progressive Christians, that they are already the purveyors of this, that they use slick words, charismatic personalities, and fancy teachings to twist the words of Scripture and lead people astray. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I'm not saying that there can't be people. I think there are people on both ends of the spectrum, on the fundamentalist end, on the very conservative, and on the very liberal progressive end that twist doctrines and lead people astray. But I also think there have been a lot of movements down through history who have done this. I believe this is what happened in Nazi Germany when the the church became so aligned with government that it became um, a tool of government and of evil. And in this case, because their government was evil, I believe this is what has hap- what happens with the KKK. It happens with cults. Cult leaders um, twist scripture. They use their very charismatic personalities. Um, they whip people up into a frenzy. They get them all in their feelings, and they lead them astray. That is part of opposition to the gospel. And we fight that by always going back to the words of Scripture, by always interpreting Scripture by Scripture, by letting the Holy Spirit lead us, and by engaging in group discernment, by talking about it with others. As Methodists, we do this with the Wesleyan quadrilateral, Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. In verse 13, he uses the phrase, God chose, um, I wanted to point this out because God is the actor 
and we are the recipients. God is always the actor. Anytime I am writing for our newsletter, for an email, or writing even a sermon, Grammarly, which is a program I use to help um, make sure I have my grammar right and my spelling, will often correct me. It'll say, this sentence is in passive voice. Yes, I know it's in passive voice. That's how I meant to write it. We receive God's grace. We don't do anything to earn it. We just are the gracious recipients of it. He also talks, at least in my translation, about first fruits. Some manuscripts are going to say from the beginning. So depending upon what translation you're using, it may phrase it a little differently. Remember that first fruits was a festival that happened really quickly after Passover, the third day, in fact. It was a festival of early harvest. They brought the first the first fruits of harvest. So they would bring a shaft of wheat. Um, and then later on Pentecost, 50 days later, they would bring evidence of the full harvest. So they would bring shafts of wheat on first fruits and a loaf of bread on Pentecost because the first fruits are evidence that the promise will be fulfilled. So when he calls them the first fruits, he's saying God's plan is and always has been the redemption of humankind. And early believers, those who believed now, are the first fruits. They're the early harvest and the sign that God's promise to redeem will be fulfilled. We might even say that we too are still in the first fruits of that because we're still awaiting the second coming. When Paul uses the word salvation, it's the Greek word sozo, which means total redemption. In the Old Testament, where it speaks of salvation, um, David says, save me from my enemies in the Psalms. In Joshua, we see save us as we um, as we go against our enemies to take the promised land, save us in battle. When the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, they use the Greek word sozo because it doesn't just mean fire insurance for the afterlife. It means a total saving body, mind, spirit, and soul. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit after justification or conversion. Some people use the word salvation where we use the word justification or conversion I prefer the word justification because at the point we convert, God treats us as though we are righteous because he looks at us through the righteousness of Christ that is ours because of his death and resurrection. But he doesn't stop. He continues to sanctify us to make us like Christ so that we become righteous. This is why we talk about, I have been saved, I am saved and I will be saved. It has already happened. It is happening. It will happen. I have been saved because Jesus has already done the work needed for me to be saved. I am saved because I have accepted that work on my behalf. I have accepted the gift of God through Jesus Christ. I am being saved because now I am in the process of being made like Christ by the Holy Spirit. He also uses the the phrase, through belief in truth, at least in my translation in verse 15. This is faithfulness to the core beliefs. He says, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught. What are those traditions? 
Paul is not talking about worship style. He's not talking about polity. He's not talking about interpretations or people. He's talking about the core beliefs of our faith, the essentials, who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and our call to follow Jesus. We move into chapter 3, and we see here a principle of reciprocity, of mutual love, prayer, and concern. Um, There is a danger of making pastors hirelings, people who do the ministry to the church and for those who are in the church, um, rather than being one of the people doing ministry in the church for the world. There's also a danger of putting ministers and pastors on pedestals. Yes, a pastor should be mature in their faith. They should be well-versed in Scripture. They should be regularly submitting to the Holy Spirit and in the process of sanctification. They should be setting a good example. One of my metaphors for the pastor is as of a coach. A coach who's leading a team should know all the rules of the support. They should know how this game is played. They should know all the positions on the team and be able to instruct and lead all the positions. They should know how to play and play well. But that coach is still not going to call the right play every time. They're not going to anticipate everything. Sometimes they're going to be wrong. They're going to lose the game. They're going to, a player's going to get hurt. Um, we can't put pastors on pedestals and make them more than human because they're not. And if we put our trust in our leaders, we will inevitably be disappointed because leaders are just human. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We follow those who are more mature, and we let them lead us. And when they fall from grace, we don't overlook it. We don't tolerate it. We don't tolerate unconfessed sin. We are disappointed, but we don't let it um, damage our faith and turn us away from Jesus. Paul affirms that God will strengthen us. He will strengthen us and guard us. And this happens for us when others pray for us. And it happens when we pray and ask God to do this for us. God help us. Wesley encouraged believers to use the means of grace to receive this strength. The means of grace include the public worship of God, our participation in an accountability group of having relationships with other Christians, of being in the scripture, of reading the Bible, both individually and with others, being in a Bible study with other believers, um, but of also taking Holy Communion. Um, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace for us, and prayer, talking to God, listening to God, hearing and yielding to the Holy Spirit. These are the ways that we receive the strength of God to live through the circumstances of our life. We balance that with the fact that faith is not an excuse for idleness. Love for one another is not an enabling of laziness. We should work and take care of ourselves. We should do our very best. And then when there's a gap between our effort and our need, we seek out and willingly accept help from others. But we're not supposed to be lazy. And Paul set this example himself by saying we did in the first letter to Thessalonians that 
we didn't ask more of you than you could give. We worked hard to not only share the gospel with you, but not to be a burden. So there's a balance that happens here about our need to accept and receive help, as well as to work hard and be diligent and to expect that of others as well. Sometimes we will have to go so far as to distance ourselves from other people. We don't have to hate those other people. We don't have to be mean to them. This is not Amish shunning that is being called for here. But there are times when we need to minimize someone's influence over us and our association with them. In other words, let your closest friends, those who have the largest influence on you and those with whom you spend most of your time, be those who strengthen your faith rather than constantly challenge it. We need to be a witness to others. We need to meet people who need Jesus, and we need to be mentoring people. Everyone should be those who are not as far along the road of faith as we are, but we also need to be being mentored by those who are more mature in the faith than we are. If all you're doing is spending time with those who need you to make them better, you will eventually get weary. You will burn out. You have to be having people pour into you as well as you pour into others. It's a flow. You mentor others while you are being mentored as well. Paul concludes the letter to the, to the Thessalonians um, by offering them the blessing of peace. The Lord of peace, the Prince of peace, that's Jesus. In verse 17, Paul adds a note that he's writing this in his own handwriting. Look at these large letters that I'm writing. I believe Paul had vision issues that lingered from his Damascus Road experience. The blinding light when Jesus appeared to him there left him blind for three days initially and probably left him with a permanent um, vision, vision problem. He used an amanuensis, a secretary, to write letters. This was a very common practice in that day and time. Very often he would dictate the letter and someone would write it. Other times you could say, uh, all this stuff we've been talking about, write a letter to them and, and let me see it and I'll sign off on it. So Paul is saying, this letter is from me. I approve of what is written in here. This is my letter. I'm not entirely sure why they needed this to be there, but it's entirely possible that the misleading letters and teachings that had come from other people mentioned in chapter one um, was that the, some of those teachers have been saying that they had a letter from Paul, that they'd had a word from Paul about this teaching. And he's just saying, no, this is what I'm saying. Paul ends this letter as he began it with grace and peace. Grace and peace open and grace and peace close. They hem us in on the front and the back. The grace of God brings the peace of God so that all is as it should be. And this is the conviction that even though it may not now be as it is supposed to be, it will one day. And this concludes the second letter to the church at Thessalonica.